have elementary age kids. We'd love them to be part of our Vine Kids time. They're going right out these side doors. Love for them to join and what we have going on with those elementary age um, kids. Well, welcome. We are glad that you're here. If you are here for the first time, I want to reiterate that we are... Hey, Zeke, that hat is killing it, dude. I love it. That is awesome. He's going to go home with the bolters. Hey, if you are here for the first time, we want to tell you what a privilege it is to have you in worship with us. We are uh, excited. We are grateful that you're here. We hope that your Sunday uh, is two things. One, people are nice to you. And two, you have an encounter with the risen Christ, probably in the opposite order there. Um, But we're glad that you are here and uh, welcome. We're actually in the middle of, I take that back, we're way towards the end of a study of Hebrews that we began a long time ago. We're actually 34 weeks in of going verse by verse, movement by movement through this book, and we have taken a little bit of a break. In fact, November 7th was when we kind of stopped for a little while, and then we picked up last week. We did some stewardship stuff, we did some Advent stuff, we got into the new year, and, and then we just kind of stepped back in. But we had left it a really natural place in Hebrews. We had stopped at the end of chapter 12, and chapter 13 is a really unique place in this study, right? It is a closing point for what is really not a book, but most likely more a sermon. A sermon that the author, who we don't know, a lot of people believe it's Apollos. We talked a little bit more about that last week as a recap, but a lot of people believe maybe it was Apollos of Alexandria, um, was a great speaker, but most people believe that Hebrews was not a book. Most scholarship points to the idea that it was probably a sermon. The way it's laid out, it's kind of concise nature, the way points are made, the whole thing just plays out much more as kind of a, a message that was spoken like a sermon as opposed to a book that was read or, or perhaps it was read, but most people seem to believe that and it, it fits the narrative pretty well. Um, but this closing part of Hebrews, this sermon is, it seems a little bit haphazard at first glance, but it's very intentional. It is a, a closing on what is a very practical part to the end of this very theologically an important book that he or letter that he writes that tags on the end of how we begin to live this out. So Hebrews in its kind of nutshell is really about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. The whole letter or sermon can be wrapped up in those two ideas. The supremacy of Christ being that he is above all things. The whole first part of the sermon is actually addressing the idea that Jesus is better. He is better than the law. He is better than Moses. He is better than the angels. He is better than the high priest. He is the only high priest that will ever need. Jesus is supreme. The middle of the letter is really about the sufficiency, meaning that Jesus is all that we need. He is totally sufficient. We do not need Jesus and something else. Now, this was in the direct combat, if you will, of what was happening in those days. Culturally, the Jewish listeners to this letter are being bombarded with a culture that's saying, you need to return to Judaism. Give up this Christianity stuff, return to Judaism, um, and go back to the practices of your family and your culture. So in other words, saying Jesus is not actually enough. And some of those uh, new believers were being pressed into the ideas of, of the Judaizers, which was this notion that, yes, you can be a Christian, 
You can follow Christ. However, in order to do that, you still need to keep and uphold the Jewish law. So you had to fully believe in Jesus and fully keep the law or you weren't saved, meaning that Jesus wasn't totally sufficient. It was Jesus and something else. And as the gospel goes, it's Jesus plus nothing. It's never Jesus and something. He is totally sufficient for salvation and for our life. So the entire letter is written about the supremacy of Christ and his sufficiency, saying you don't have to return to Judaism. You don't have to keep the law. In fact, you can't. And because you can't, God sent his only son to die, that if we put our hope and our trust in him, we will be completely and totally saved forever. That's the promise of the gospel. And that's really what Hebrews is about. Jesus is better. Jesus is bigger. He's all that we need. And so as he gets towards the end of this message, he begins to turn practical. Chapter 10 begins that process of saying, how do we live out the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ in our daily lives? And he begins to give very practical examples. When we get to chapter 13, he breaks it down to some supremely important things that culture was facing and that our culture is actually facing. It's amazing how the word is just so consistently and continually timely. But he's going to address some things uh, that are very specific as he wraps up this sermon. And last week we looked at the first of those, the idea of love and the community. And how we're called to love each other as family. And how we're called to entertain strangers. To live with this biblical hospitality. Not forget those among us who are in prison, who are mistreated. To love the marginalized. And we spent a lot of time last week breaking down those things and talking about what they are. This week we're going to be looking at that next section. So if we're moving from love as a community, we're going to be talking about two more important things that he drops. He talks about marriage and he talks about money. And then finally he's going to talk about Christian leadership and how we trust the church and what the role of the elder is and those things. But we're going to look at these two, and they're, they're two short verses, but we're going to actually look at them in two weeks um, because we're going to do it in two parts. I tried to do it all in one week, but really there's just too much here to leave unspoken if we cram them together. So this morning we're going to talk about marriage, and next week we're going to talk about money. Um, they're really the same sermon in terms of what they're geared towards, and our author or our speaker wants us to make sure that we're geared towards this. Make sure you love the right thing. So as he talks about love and the community and how we're called to live that out, he brings up marriage and he brings up money and his whole point is going to be make sure you love the right thing. In other words, don't fall in love with the wrong thing. Oftentimes we fall in love with money from a cultural standpoint and we disregard marriage from a cultural standpoint. He says God's economy flips those things around. The things that are important to God are not necessarily important to culture. So love the right thing. Thing. And he's going to give them some very specific instructions. So this morning we're going to talk about marriage. Now, if you are not married, it does not matter. This message is just as much for you as it is for anyone here that is married. And you're going to see why. And whether it's for young or older people or the widowed or those that are yet to be married or engaged, all of these words are wrapped up for you because God is doing something very specific when he talks about marriage. So don't tune out because you're like, hey, I'm not there yet or or whatever. This is actually incredibly timely and important. So as you got your Bible, I want you to open up to Hebrews 13. We're going to look at all five verses. We're going to read them all together, one through five, but we're going to focus on one, verse four. That's our whole goal for today, is to somehow manage to get through the depth that is wrapped up in Hebrews 13, four. So let's take a look at that, and we'll pray together, and then we'll open it up. Lord, we are eternally grateful that you've done what we could not do for ourselves. That while we were fully sinful and totally sinful, you sent your son Jesus to die for us that in him we might have eternal life. That if we put our hope and our faith in him, we will fail at everything we try and accomplish spiritually. We will fall short. We cannot make it. 
We cannot keep the law. We cannot live morally. We cannot make perfect decisions, Lord. We are in need of you. You knew that, and you sent your son to redeem us. So our only hope in life and death is actually in Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning we gather from every walk of life, from every kind of picture and portion from a moral standpoint, all coming to the exact same place, which is we need Jesus. Not one of us in this room is better than the other. Not one of us in this room has figured this thing out. We are all desperately in need of Jesus, Lord, and we're going to see that. As we talk about marriages, Lord, we're going to come from the whole picture of the spectrum. Some not even thinking about it. Some, maybe you're a middle schooler and marriage isn't even on your horizon. Or, or maybe you're dating or you're engaged. Or maybe you're in the middle of a marriage. And maybe your marriage is great. Or maybe, maybe your marriage is hard. Or maybe you're on the back end of a marriage that feels out of reach. Or, or maybe you've lost a spouse. All of these things um, are going to fall into the spectrum of what you talked to us about today. And so, Lord, I pray that what we would do is we would heed your word. We would listen to what you're speaking to our hearts, and we would let it impact us um, as people that are in desperate need of Christ. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you. It's really easy when we talk about marriage or money or things like that to go ahead and let the calluses that culture has placed on our heart keep us from hearing. We form our own ideas and thoughts and opinions about money, about marriage, about culture, and we let those things press the word out of us. Ask the Lord to remove those this morning, just for the moments, to remove any calluses on your heart when it comes to love, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to what you've seen or what you know. Ask the Lord to give you a clean slate and teach you this morning. So just whisper that God will give you a clean slate in your heart and teach you. Lord, we ask that you would be exalted in this place, that you would teach us through your word. These are your words. They are not mine. And I pray, Lord, that we would listen carefully and that we would learn from you. We ask these things in the risen. Well, let's do this before we do that. Let's take a moment. Let's pray for the people around us. We do this each week. Just pray for that person on your right or left. Maybe it's your spouse this morning. Maybe you just take an extra moment and pray for them or you pray for the couple beside you. Maybe you don't know, maybe you you do. Just whisper a word that God would move in them. We try and do this each week as a way of praying for the people around us. Just think about somebody else a little bit this morning and pray for them. Lord, we turn our morning over to you, everything about it. Be glorified in this place. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So let's look at 13. We're going to read all five verses because I want you to see them in context of what our author is doing. But we're going to be focusing on verse 4 this morning. So keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who were in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexual immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we see chapter 13 turn to this incredibly sort of practical way to begin to live out the supremacy and sufficiency, the trust that we have in Jesus. And he's going to address five things. Really, he's going to point them out and say, these are things that we have got 
to focus on. And he's going to address these things in terms of high values for the Christian community. Last week we talked about the idea of love and the community, biblical hospitality, entertaining strangers, living in a way that reflects that love as family. We talked about keep on loving as family. And this week we're looking at this idea of marriage and next week will be money and then we'll talk about leadership. But the idea for this week comes right out of verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all. The marriage bed should be kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexual immoral. So Pretty easy to look at what he's saying at first glance. But marriage is a really interesting thing, right? Because a lot of us come to the definition of marriage from different places, or at least our understanding of marriage from different places. A lot of us come from broken homes. We've had poor pictures of marriage. A lot of us have seen marriage um, in ways that were abusive or that weren't loving. We haven't had great pictures of it. A lot of us have seen things from our parents that we're trying really desperately not to mimic. Some of us are coming from beautiful marriages, which our parents never fought, and they sang together, and they lit hymns in the hallways. Like We all have different images, right? We just do. And so when we talk about marriage, it's hard to say this is what it looks like because we all have these different pictures. But it's important because God's going to address it from the standpoint of being really timely because it's timely in that culture and it's timely in our culture. There's a reason our author takes a moment and he says, I want to talk to you about marriage. And at first glance, we're thinking, why would that be important in first century Palestine? Like, these are ethnically Jewish believers or ethnically Jewish people. They were previously religiously Jewish and now they're Christians. Like the divorce rate should be at like 0.0.0, right? Like not like it is today where it's like 54% of marriages will end in divorce. And those numbers are like four years ago. So why would the author be addressing it? Well, because the truth is it's facing the same problems. Marriage was facing the same problems and dilemmas that we're addressing today that we have in our culture. And so as we begin to look at this verse in, in chapter 4, it's really important that we do a couple things when we think about Scripture. And I want you to heed these things because they're going to be important how we talk about next week too. But there's three things we have to understand as we approach Scripture with culturally relevant things because we allow culture to influence a lot of the ways that we think. But we have to stop for a moment. That's why I ask you to empty your heart and remove those calluses because I want you to think about things in a different light when we read Scripture. Firstly, I want you to think scripturally or think from Scripture. What that means is I want to use the whole. It's really easy to proof text things in Scripture to find one verse, manipulate a word, turn it into this, make yourself feel satisfied about whatever that is, and live with it. Scripture is meant to be lived and read as, its enti- as an entirety. It is a collection of God's redemptive work and plan, his love letter for us. So Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation works together to inform us of what God is saying, who he is, and how we're called to live. So we have to think from Scripture, meaning that just because Hebrews doesn't say something doesn't mean that God isn't saying it somewhere else in that context. So we we take a mindset that says, I'm going to think from the whole of Scripture. The second thing we do is that we've got to work to be out of sync with culture. We have to actually work our hearts to a place where we are not in sync with cultural definitions of things. So our culture doesn't get to dictate what we think about stuff, right? That's a very biblical principle, but it's something that we have to work towards because a lot of our definitions of things and ideas of things have been shaped by culture. So we've got to think scripturally. We have to work to be out of sync with culture, and we have to work to be in sync with the word. So the third thing there is that we've got to work to get our hearts in sync with the word. So when we look at Scripture as a whole, we've got to think about its entirety. We've got to work to get culture pushed to the side so that I'm out of sync with it and not trying to make sure that my definitions are in lockstep with culture, but instead I'm going to try and be in sync with the Word. 
So how does my life stay in lockstep with the word and out of step with culture? Because very rarely do those things actually walk together. In fact, the majority of scripture is addressing things that culture is broken, right? So that being said, and that's going to come back to and be why that's important here in a moment. The whole concept that our author's getting at in chapter four is this, or in verse four, honor marriage. Marriage should be honored among all. So the overall principle here that he's going to support some ideas are honor marriage, which we've got to ask ourselves, okay, so if I'm thinking scripturally and I'm not thinking culturally, I'm out of sync with culture, in sync with the word, then what is it we're talking about when we talk about marriage, right? It's an important question. Like, what is it that the scripture is really talking about? What is our author actually speaking to? And there's a whole bunch of places we could go. Scripture's full of these definitions, but the best one, and I think the easiest one for us to address, uh, it comes straight out of the Genesis. It's from the creation, it's the beginning. Rather than hopping all over and finding a ton of verses that support this from the whole of scripture, we're gonna step into Genesis, and we're gonna say, what did God do from the beginning, right? And it's important. And in Genesis chapter two, this is where God begins to define marriage. And he says this in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 30, uh, let's see, 23 and 24. All right, he says this. Then man said, this is now bone of my bones. He's talking about woman. And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Jesus later on in Matthew chapter 19, when uh, being actually tricked by the Pharisees and trying to, actually being attempted to be tricked, Jesus never actually gives in, tricked by the Pharisees into giving an okay for divorce. They try and pin him into a, a question. He actually quotes those verses and adds some ideas about the sanctity of marriage. In Matthew 19, verse 3, he says this, Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, and they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he will be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus himself, right, takes the very definition coming out of Genesis and he reiterates it and he adds on the idea of no man shall separate. So we talk about honoring marriage. The first thing we've got to understand is that we honor marriage by honoring what God has established. And what has God has established as we look at Genesis and, and that verse in Matthew, what Jesus is saying? Well, God has established that marriage is between one man and one woman in which they become one flesh. It's the principle of ones, if you will, right? One man and one woman in which they become one flesh. Now, for the rest of our lives in our culture, when we begin to use that definition of marriage, you'll be looked at with squinty eyes from people, almost taken aback, right? You'll be looked at as hateful. You'll be looked at as a bigot. But what I want you to understand is that this is not your definition. You didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. I'm literally reading it straight from Genesis coming out of the mouth of Christ that for that reason, God made man and woman and a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall join his wife and they will become one in what God has joined together. Let no one separate. So God has established in the very fabric of humanity this picture of marriage that is between one man and one woman for one flesh. That's the picture of marriage that is laid out biblically. And culture will do everything to tell you that that definition is wrong. It's a lie. It's actually not about being hateful. It's actually not about being a bigot. It's about being biblical. It's about honoring God's word for what it says and being truthful in its definitions. 
We cannot honor marriage and redefine it. So we honor marriage by honoring what God has established and we can't take what God has established and redefine it and tell ourselves that we are honoring marriage. Now, culture can redefine whatever they want to. That is fine. But from a biblical standpoint as believers, we have to deal with the reality that God has defined it from the beginning. And there are hundreds of other places in Scripture that I can show you that support this idea coming out of Genesis. That's why we think scripturally. That's why we think from scripture. We take all these pieces that line up and God paints this incredibly beautiful picture. And we can't worry about being in lockstep with culture. That's why we have to think about being out of sync with culture. Because we can't worry about lining our definitions of culture, our cultural definitions up with biblical definitions. We are called as followers of Christ to be in sync with the word and out of sync with the world. That's just the call of following in Christ. You know, this definition of marriage is actually pre-political. It, def- it is before all politics. There were no politics when God established this. We're talking about the creation of man and woman. There were no Republicans, Democrats. There were no parliamentarians. There were no libertarians. There were no political parties. God's definitions of marriage are pre-political, which means you are not a liberal or conservative based on your definitions coming straight from Genesis 2 out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 19. So we honor marriage first and foremost by honoring what God has established. We cannot honor marriage if we're going to redefine it. That's the challenge, right? Because you will face, and if you think this is just about marriage, you're sorely wrong, but you will face all throughout your life the rub of following Christ, honoring Scripture, and living in a culture that will not help you. Our culture will not help your marriage. It will not. We're going to see in a moment that everything in culture is actually set up to help you gratify yourself. It is not established to save your marriage, to help your marriage, and to help you get and help you stay and remain married. We'll talk about that in a moment. We talk about purity. But culture is pushing the very envelope that says, if you want to be a part of this, then you have to be in step with us. And if not, we will use names and we will call you things like hateful and bigot and whatever. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with not loving people. It has to do with establishing a biblical principle that God has established and saying, this is what God says. I, didn't, I did not make this up. It's not Treb's. It's not yours. God established it from the beginning, pre-political, predefining all other definitions. In fact, when man and woman were created by God, however you want to look at Genesis, doesn't matter. When man and woman were created by God, He established a covenant in which one man and one woman would leave their families and they would become one. And Jesus adds on top of that, followed up by a whole lot of stuff from Moses, that what God joined together as one, that one flesh, should not be separated. In other words, that one man and one woman, they become one. So if we honor marriage truly, if he says marriage should be honored by all, right, we have to understand that In order to do that, we have to honor what God has established. We do not get to rewrite the definitions, okay? So that being said, second way we honor marriage is by honoring purity. Listen to that second part of that verse. Marriage should be honored by all. The marriage bed kept pure. So when we talk about purity, we're talking about a couple of things. We're talking about sexually pure, meaning just what our author's talking about, infidelity and adultery. Marriage bed being kept pure means you're not sleeping with someone outside of your marriage, okay? So the idea is that we're talking literally purity from in terms of the sexual nature of a marriage. We're also talking about purity of the mind, 
what we put in from culture and what we take out from culture. And we're also talking about the purity of the actual unity being one flesh and staying together. So the idea that marriage should be one man, one woman, till death do us part. When we talk about purity, we're talking about it in terms of those things. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is not new. It's not like our author is making this sermon so that 2,000 years later, you would be sitting here and you would hear it. He is preaching to a group of people 2,000 years ago that needed to hear it. It just so happens that we still need to hear it. So even though the predominantly Jewish culture that he was preaching to, that were ethnically Jewish, that at one time were religiously Jewish, that are now religiously Christian, and their marriage rate were much lower than ours, it was still a significant problem. Otherwise, he wouldn't be bringing it up. In fact, there were certain rabbinic schools that believed and taught that you could divorce your wife if you were displeased with her. Right? They taught that. They said, you know, what Jesus said actually doesn't apply because I don't like it. And therefore, if you're displeased with your wife, you can of course, walk out. And so our author's addressing it from that standpoint. But on top of that, they're living in a predominantly Roman culture. And that Roman culture hadn't actually redefined marriage as our culture had, but they had done everything else that could be totally accessible. Meaning you could be a married sinner living in Rome and have an 11-year-old boy as your companion. You could be a married sinner living in Rome and have as many concubines as you want, all totally legal. There was nothing that was off the table. And so here you have these believers that are being called back into a Jewish culture that some, place, some voices are saying, do what you want. They're, being, they're living in a Roman culture that says, define it however you want to. Like, whatever brings you pleasure. Like, yeah, marriage between a man and a woman, but whatever you need to do on the side, you do. Because it's about you. And this is why I said that culture will not help you in your marriage. It is designed, culturally is designed for you to make sure that you are gratified. In other words, that you are happy. The number one thing I hear as a pastor over all these years, and people come in and they talk about their marriages, they talk about how they're struggling is, I'm no longer happy. And I typically say, and I'm a horrible counselor, just FYI, if you ever go, I mean, seriously, you're going to need to see someone that really knows. I simply say, I don't care. That's my honest first reaction. A guy comes in, he says, Treb, you don't get it, man. I've been married 11 years and I'm not happy. And I look at him and say, I don't care because you're so focused on gratifying your own needs and desires, right? Marriage is this idea of mutual, beautiful submission. And there's a lot to unpack there. And of course, I don't leave things there, but that's really the truth, which is culture said, hey, if you're not happy, get out, dude. Or you as a lady, if you're not happy, if you're not meeting your needs, walk away. You can. The Supreme Court says you can. The courts say you can. The law says you can. Culture will actually welcome it. Get married multiple times. Get out if you're not happy. Listen, please yourself. Gratification is at your fingertips. If you are not happy, find something that will make you happy. This is why we cannot be in sync with culture. Purity, believe it or not, falls in those realms. It falls in the realms of saying, everything is not about me and my gratification and my pleasure. Marriage is this beautiful picture of mutual submission in which a man dies to himself and a woman dies to herself and they become a new thing, a one thing. One woman and one man becoming one flesh. This was not a new problem. It's still a problem. 
And so this is what our author says. You can address purity from a couple of different ways. You can address purity from inside the marriage, and you've got to address purity from outside the marriage. And inside the marriage means for those that are married. So for those that are married, we are called very specifically to do several things. One, keep the marriage bed pure, which means stay away from adultery and infidelity. Easy to say, right? That's part of the number one thing when it comes to being married. The goal is to stay away from adultery and infidelity. That's the the strict way, the most logical way, and the one way he addresses here that says keep the marriage bed pure. Don't be with someone else, right? But purity goes beyond that. It doesn't just say don't do the act. Purity talks about the purity of the mind. The idea that there are outside influences that will impurify our hearts and our minds. It means that if we're married, we are fighting not just against infidelity. We are fighting not just against adultery. We are fighting against pornography. We are fighting against other things of culture that come in and want to impurize our marriage. They want to tell us there's a different definition of purity. We are fighting the things that say there's something better on the other side. And we're fighting the things that we put in our mind that take us away from the oneness with our spouse. Anything that takes us away from that oneness, right? Mentally, lustfully, from images, from whatever you want to do, however you want to talk about it. Anything that takes us away from that oneness, we have to fight against. So we fight for purity on the inside. Obviously from adultery, from infidelity, but from the mental impurity that comes from the outside influences that most literally are at your fingertips, on your phones, on your computers, and culture, and everything that tells you that this is about you. It doesn't just have to be the graphic things. It's anything that tells you, get what you deserve. And we're fighting against the impurity of the breaking of the union. Our culture will tell us, look, if you're not happy, just you, you deserve to be happy. Get out. Here's the thing. I'm not telling you to stay and do all the. I'm telling you is to fight. I don't know what's going on in your circumstances. I, don't have, I can give you a list of reasons why maybe you should, but we're not really there. What we're talking about is fight to stay as one. If you fight and fight and fight, and for whatever reason you can't get there, and there's other things... Get with the counselor, get with us, we'll talk it through. But the reality is, this isn't a stay and be abused thing. It's not that. I'm talking about fighting past the sake of saying it would be easier to be done. I've been married 25 years. I'm terrible at marriage, terrible at marriage. I literally am terrible. There have been times where I thought it would be easier to be out, to be done. That's just true. I mean, Meredith probably wakes up every day and says, God, it'd be so much easier to be out. Like, this guy's a lot of work. And the return on investment is terrible. Terrible. So we're fighting for something that's bigger than just what I'm gratified by. And both parties fight together, not on their own, but for each other. Meaning I fight to prevent infidelity and adultery, not just for myself, but for my spouse. I fight to prevent impurities of my mind not just for myself, but for my spouse. I fight to prevent the drifting that takes us apart from unity, not just for me, but for her or for him. I die to myself to become one together. And so we fight for purity on the inside. Now we also fight for purity on the outside, meaning for those that aren't yet married or may not be married or have been married and not gonna be married again, whatever that definition is for those that aren't married. And I'm not saying the only way to live the life is to be married. I'm just saying if you're not and maybe you won't be or you currently aren't or maybe you're too young or maybe you're engaged, you are still called to fight for purity. 
You can very much fight for purity of the marital bed before you are ever married. Your body is literally a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a dwelling place for God. How we treat it and what we put into it and what we allow other people to do with it is actually as much the idea of purity as adultery inside of a marriage. It's just true. We are called to keep that bed, that place, pure. So if you are a young person, I want you to understand that it's not a free reign up until you get married, and then from that point on, everything is just inside these confines. Every moment of our movement is toward purity to say, God, I honor you with my mind and my body. Therefore, I am preparing myself for whatever you have for me. And the greatest gift that I could ever give my husband, ever give my wife, is that I fought for purity before I ever met them. It's the greatest gift my wife has ever given me, that she fought for purity before she ever met me, ever thought about me, ever knew my name. She cared enough about her God and honoring him that she fought for purity outside of our marriage before it ever began. So we honor God by honoring what he has established. We cannot honor marriage and redefine it. We honor God by honoring purity. And hear me say this, if you are caught up in the middle of any number of things, if you are caught up in the middle of, of adultery, you are caught up in the middle of infidelity, you are caught up in the middle of pornography, you are caught up in the middle of whatever it is, there is a beautiful thing here that we're about to hear. And that is, none of that is beyond God's redemption. Right? And that's what our author is getting ready to essentially lead us into. So the third thing that we see is that we honor marriage by heeding God's warning. Listen to this. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexual immoral. So God will judge the adulterer and the sexual immoral. Here's the warning. God's judgment is real. We've talked about it a zillion times in here. God's judgment is real. But the beautiful thing of what he says is that he does not say that the sexual immoral or the adulterer is beyond God's reach. It is not the unpardonable sin. Now, I'm not making that up either, right? These are actually Paul's very words that come out of his letter to the church in Corinth. He says this. He says this to them. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So this is what Paul says. He says, some of you were the adulterers. Some of you were, right, the sexual immoral. Some of you were the drunkards, the slanders, the greedy. All of these things that fall in this category of things that you have lived and have done. And he says, some of you that are hearing me in Corinth, that is you. But, but. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You've been justified by what? By your effort? By promising God you would never do it again? Right? By reading more letters from Paul? By reading more scripture? By praying more? Not by any of those things. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified by the blood of Jesus because you came with a broken and contrite heart and God is a God of grace. That's the beautiful picture because if that were not true, then these words that come at the end of Hebrews 13, 4 would be devastating. For almost all of us. Because God will judge the adulterer and the sexual immoral. Meaning God judges the unrepentant. God judges the unrepentant. 
But there's freedom in Christ if we come with broken and contrite hearts. God promises to forgive our sins when we confess them. There is nothing beyond God's redemption of grace. Meaning no matter how broken you think your marriage is, no matter what you've done, how you've done it, there is always hope. There's always hope. And that hope is not in you and not in your ability to do it perfectly and not in all the promises you're going to make to your wife. Or not all the promises you're going to make yourself to say, I'm never going to do this again because I know I'm going to get married one day. I'm never going to engage in that. Not all the promises, you will fail them. But the redemption comes because of Jesus. Because in truth, you have a broken heart over what you've done, what you've thought, how you've lived it. And that doesn't just mean the person that's engaged in the behavior, but even how you treat people that are engaged in the behavior. And we just come to Jesus. And we say, God, I'm broken. I've blown it. I failed. I need you. I cannot do it. Cleanse me, free me, and set me on a path to which I will follow you and walk after you and not after my own sexual gratification or any gratification that involves me. But don't miss the warning here. I mean, this is stark and it is real and our author is not playing around. This is not a joke to God. Pornography, lust, adultery, sexual morality, these are not jokes when God says that he will judge the adulterer of the sexual moral, he is not kidding. It's not like, ah, no, it's, you know, it's different now. It's not different now. It's actually possibly worse now because of access to things. God's not kidding. He judges us. And without Christ, we are destined for destruction. But in Christ, there is hope in everything. Meaning no long, how many years it's been that you've wrestled with whatever. No matter how difficult those moments in your marriage have been. No matter how far you think you have drifted apart from the day that you say I do. There is nothing beyond God's redemptive, restorative, whole hands. Nothing. Which means there is no way that you read these verses and you leave here today without hope. It's impossible. We are called to honor marriage by honoring what God has established, by his definitions, by not being in sync with culture, by being in sync with the word. We honor marriage by living in those definitions, the one man, one woman, one flesh, and fighting for purity, honoring that. Saying no matter what I've done, doesn't mean I have to do it tomorrow. I'm fighting for tomorrow. I'm fighting that today will be the day that I stop, that we stop, that we talk, that I get honest, that I get help, that I get people around me, that I do whatever it takes to do to fight for purity in my marriage, in my heart, in my life. And maybe for my marriage that is not even yet to begin, that I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to rid myself of the things that I know that God has called me out of, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to find accountability, I'm going to find help, whatever it takes. And I'm going to listen to the warning that God gives me, which is his judgment is real, and this is not a joke, and I'm called to purge myself of these things. But I also am not going to beat myself up into a shame spiral. Because the promise is there is redemption in Christ if I come to him. Just as Paul said, all of these things will not inherit the kingdom, but you. But you were washed and you were once one of them. But you have been cleansed and justified and sanctified and you are free in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That's who you were, not who you are. All right? So then if you look at this coupled with verse 1, there's a really interesting piece here for the community. That's why I want to read these verses together. So the verse 1 says, keep on loving as family. So then what becomes the role of the community when we talk about things like marriage and money? The role of the community is this. You cannot survive 
in this culture, in your marriage alone. Everything in this culture is designed to break it apart because it's going to tell you to do what you want. There are no helps for your marriage within our culture because once you run to the place past your gratification, just says, try again, man. You know, didn't work. It's okay. Doesn't work for a lot of us. It's a lie. So the community's call is to fight for each other. If we're going to love as family, the first thing we do is we have to park our judgment at the door. Okay? Which means that you don't get the right to judge somebody else's marriage on any basis. Because we could pick your life apart with all the things that you've thought and done that just aren't visible. So take your judgment and stick it somewhere else. Right? It's just true. Family doesn't get that right. And so what we do then is we take that judgment and put it aside and we begin to fight for the wholeness of marriage of married people and fight for the marriages of our single people that one day will be or the purity of those that will not be. And we fight together. And we get honest and we get real and we don't worry about, oh, did you hear this? Did you see that? No, we just say, what can we do for you? How can we walk alongside you? Men, how can we hold each other accountable? Women, how can we not gather and not talk about all the negative things that our husbands do, but instead find ways to build them up to each other? How do we instill strength in our marriages? How do we whisper these words of truth to our young people who are one day going to be married, not giving them a picture of marriage that is bleak and distant and bad, the one that is beautiful and right and one. How do we talk differently about our spouses? How do we fight together as family to honor what God has established? If marriage is called to be honored, then it needs to be spoken about with honor. So we honor marriage, right? By honoring what God has established, by honoring purity, by heeding the warning, and by as a family fighting for each other, in our marriages, and in those that are not yet or will be or maybe not ever be married by fighting for their purity and by living as examples and by being honest about where yours is broken, which is the hardest thing in the universe to do because everybody else's is perfect. Perfect, except for yours. And when you start to pull those walls down a little bit, all of a sudden you're not so alone. This is why our author takes this section, he says, I don't want you to miss it. Because if you, if you define it, if you get in step with culture, if you get in sync with culture, you're going to end up broken. So you've got to be in sync with the word. You didn't, you didn't make this stuff up. So as we think about our marriages moving forward, our marriages that are existing, the marriages that are soon to be, the marriages that feel like they're on the brink, those that are, haven't even thought about marriage, it is a high value to the Lord. Therefore, it should be a high value to us. What do you need to do today, today, not tomorrow, not Monday, I guess tomorrow would be Monday, not Tuesday, in your life to honor not just your marriage, but the marriages of people around you, right? How do you fight for the right definitions, establishing purity, heeding the warning of God, and fighting for the people around you? This becomes the call of the community. Marriage should be honored among all. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and how true it is and how oftentimes it does speak in direct opposition to culture. It just does. And culture wants to look at the believer and tell them why they're wrong, why there is a better definition. And Lord, it has nothing to do with judging people. It literally doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with being a bigot or being hateful. All it has to do with is just honoring your word and just saying, God, I'm going to honor what you've established. I'm going to love people all the same. 
But I'm not going to be in lockstep with culture as a follower of Christ. I just, I'm just not. And therefore, when we honor marriage, we honor marriage as one man and one woman becoming one flesh. Culture is going to define whatever they want to, however they want it. It's, that's fine by me. But when it comes to looking at Scripture and what you honor, Lord, that's, that's where we land. And because you honor it, I want to honor it. I'm not going to redefine it. And I want to honor it with purity in my own life. 25 years of my own marriage coming up this summer, Lord, have not been perfect by any means. I want to fight for purity in my own marriage. I want to fight for purity for the marriages in our community. I want to fight for purity for the young people that have yet to be married, those that are engaged, those that are thinking about marriage, those that are on the backside of marriage, those that have lost a spouse, Lord. We are fighting for purity. It applies to all of us. Purity of marital bed, purity of our minds, Lord. Purity of the actual union of becoming one flesh. And we're going to remember this isn't a game to you. That we're heeding a warning in which you're not joking about. That you are a God whose judgment is very real. And that you tell us specifically right here that you will judge the adulterer and the sexual moral. In other words, you will judge the unrepentant heart. And Lord, in Christ, he is our only hope. In life and death. And so, Lord, we rest upon the grace of Jesus. We come with broken and contrite hearts in which we confess our hearts, ask for the forgiveness of Christ, and not bury ourselves in shame and guilt, but rise with the newness of life in the resurrected Christ, that what was yesterday doesn't have to be tomorrow. That my definitions of how hard and difficult my marriage is does not mean it will be that way forever. There is redemption and restoration in Christ, and I will always have hope. And we will fight for each other. Fight for each other's marriages, meaning that we will be honest and less judgmental. We will be truthful and accountable. And we will weep and we will celebrate together. Because we're all in this same boat. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would press those things on our heart. That you would be glorified in our definitions, in our heart, and our actions, because we love you. And what you've joined together, may we never separate. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. Desire is now satisfied here in your love. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than.
Amen. So, of course, the challenge is to walk out of here having heard God's word and let it impact and kind of dwell into our hearts that nothing is beyond God's reach, beyond his redemption, that marriage is to be honored by all of us. We do that by honoring God's definitions, right? By honoring purity and fighting for purity and by listening to the warnings and as a family, fighting for what matters to the Lord and for each other. So take these things, let them impact your life. And remember, tomorrow can be and will be different. There is always hope in Christ. Go in peace.